I love getting to work with the people I get to work with. I'm, I'm climbing up the stairs to the pulpit. Avonda looks at me. She's like, can you beat that? <laughs> I don't even know if I want to try. The music has been beautiful this morning. Thank you. <laughs> this is fun. Well, friends, today we are beginning both Lent and we're beginning the second movement in our sermon series on Exodus. This second movement is going to take us through Easter, and we're calling this movement the work of freedom. Work of freedom refers both to the work God does to free us from sin and death and the work we need to do to leave behind sin and death in our lives. For the Hebrew people living in bondage under Pharaoh, liberation will take a ton of work. And as we ask about the work of freedom, we're going to get to see the methods and the means that God uses to secure the freedom of the Hebrew people. Some of the methods that God uses are actions that we refer to when we look back at the book of Exodus, we refer to them as plagues. We're not going to look at all the plagues during Lent, but we're going to spend some time with several of them wrestling with the violence and destruction that tends to take place in the Old Testament and in Exodus. And we'll, we'll stay in Exodus through the end of March, but once we get into April for Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, we'll transition to the gospel readings because we need to spend some time with Jesus after all of these plagues, right? It's going to be important. Um, and that'll conclude our uh, look at the work of freedom here. Now, during this season, um, I'd also like to try something new. One of the things that um, pedagogically is not great about sermons is that we learn better. That's what ped pedagogy is about. We learn better when there's a dialogue instead of a monologue. You can learn much more when there's an opportunity to, to respond instead of just be lectured at. And so what I'd invite you to do is if during Lent you have any questions that come up, during the sermon, to, to write them down, either on your bulletin, on one of the pew envelopes that's before you, and put them in the offering plate as it passes by. Pastor Susan um, got an email from me earlier this weekend with this idea, and she was like, yes, let's do it. We're going to try to record like a little mini podcast episode partway through the week that we'll make available where we try to respond to some of these questions. Um, and just generally, if there's anything that ends up on the cutting room floor of the sermon we think is interesting, we'll share it with you. So if there are questions you have you'd like a response to, let's play stump the pastor a little bit during Lent, and let's have a good time. Um, and we'll share that link to our responses in the Thursday email that comes out each week. Sound good? And if you're not getting those emails, let the church office know. We'll make sure that you get on that email list. Okay, especially during Lent, it's appropriate for us to remember the intensity with which God opposes sin. God opposes sin because God seeks to free us from sin so that God can destroy sin and death without harming us. And as we begin Lent, we're going to be reminded of the care and love that God has for God's people by looking at the care and love God has for Moses. Our second reading is going to come to us from the book of Exodus, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. You can follow along in your bulletins, or if you'd like to open up your Red Pew Bibles to the Old Testament section, page 52 will take you uh, to chapter 6. This is Exodus 6, 1 through 13. I invite you to listen now for God's word to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. 
Indeed, by a mighty hand, he will let them go. By a mighty hand, he will drive them out from his land. Now, God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. I've also heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his land. But Moses spoke to the Lord, the Israelites have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, poor speaker that I am? Thus the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them orders regarding the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, charging them to free the Israelites from the land of Egypt. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Speak to us once more this morning, living God, as you spoke to our ancestors, using the voices of your prophet, the breath of your spirit, and the very life of your son, so that we might live according to your word. We pray this in the name of your word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, I think you'd be forgiven if you're experiencing a little bit of deja vu with this passage. Didn't we already see this dialogue between Moses and God? Didn't this happen just a couple chapters ago? And didn't God already encourage Moses that despite his poor rhetorical ability, that he would still lead the people of God out of Egypt? Didn't God already offer Moses this special name, Yahweh? What's going on here? Why do we have like a duplicate story? This is actually going to happen a few times in Exodus. If you read the book carefully, you'll see multiple accounts of Passover. You'll see multiple ways of understanding the crossing of the Red Sea. And if you compare Exodus with numbers, you're going to see a bunch more duplicate stories of the Israelites complaining in the wilderness. You may also have noticed this if you are a careful reader of Genesis and look at Genesis 1 and 2, these two stories of creation. Now, these duplicate stories, particularly for Western scholars in the last 300 years, they've been like, they got stuck in their craw. They've really rankled Western scholars. And so we've tried to find a way of explaining that. There's one proposal that gained steam a couple hundred years ago that tried to explain these duplications and other seeming discontinuities in the Torah. And we're going to do just a brief deep dive. I promise we're coming right back to the passage, but bear with me for a second. 
This, this uh, idea suggested that there was a compiler who took multiple oral traditions. You could think of them as like different yarns that are tied together into this new s- stitching. I, I don't know how to stitch. I don't know how to quilt or anything like that. But you could think of it like that. And, and Mary, Mary knows what I'm talking about. Um, I, I don't know. I, but like y- y- you bring these things together and you make a beautiful whole out of things that were disparate is sort of the idea. You could think about it like a harmony of the gospels. If you were to arrange Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in like a chronological way, you'll have duplicate stories, but like you'll kind of get a picture of Jesus' life. That was the idea of what may have happened with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you want to look at this more, you can investigate resources on what's called the documentary hypothesis. Um, that's, but, but we won't go further into it this morning. I wanted to name that because I think it's important for you all to kind of get a grip on how this has been explained before I offer my take on this. Even though that might be the historical explanation that might hold up, I don't know. I I don't know that we need an explanation for why God has to tell us things multiple times, right? How many of you have had to be told something multiple times by God, right? Many of us are thick-headed, right? We need to, (laughs) thank you, Pastor Susan. I see those hands. Um, I, I need God to tell me the same thing over and over again, over and over again. Maybe you find yourself praying for patience yet again, right? Which is a dangerous prayer to pray, by the way. Or maybe once again, you find yourself concerned that God thinks you're capable of way more than you think you're capable of doing. Maybe some of you have found yourself in that situation. And last week, we ended our reading with Moses being blamed for all the problems that the children of Israel were experiencing under bondage to Pharaoh. Moses was perhaps at his nadir, his lowest point in the book of Exodus. So it's not surprising that Moses returns to God with the same concerns and the same weaknesses that he expressed at the burning bush. Maybe it is a strand of another tradition, sure, but it's probably because he's Moses and he still has the same concerns and the same shortcomings. It's the same reason that you and I have to be told over and over by God the same things. Moses still needs God to remind him of the promises that God gave. He still needs God to tell him of the story of rescue that God is working out to assure him that God is still on his side. Moses needs to be reminded that when hope seems lost, we can trust in the promises of God. While we might feel discouraged when we have to confront the same demons over and over again, I don't think that these repeated failures discourage God. I think, in fact, that God is much kinder to us than we tend to be to ourselves. Although in being kind... God still asks us to do certain things that we might not have thought ourselves able to do. Uh, But when we look again at what God says to Moses in response to his lament, we see these encouragements, these, these, these phrases of kindness. I'm going to paraphrase real briefly. God tells Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to your ancestors. I established a covenant with them. 
I've heard the groanings of your people. I've remembered my covenant. I am the Lord. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord. I will bring you into the land and I will give it to you. I am the Lord. Now notice, nowhere in all of that conversation between Moses and God, does God say, Moses, you should have done better. Moses, stop complaining to me. Moses, get your head in the game. We don't hear that from God at all. Instead, God reminds Moses over and over again about God's identity and God's promises. And then God commands him again, go confront Pharaoh. It's the identity of God that grounds the command of God for us to be like God. In fact, I'm going to ask you all to do something I don't normally do in my sermons. I'm going to ask you to take your Red Pew Bibles and pull them out for a second because I want to uh, refer to something that doesn't come across in the bulletin, some of the formatting in this. That's important just to take a note of in Scripture. This is page 52, by the way, uh, chapter 6. Um, and I want you to look for the all caps words in chapter 6. You may notice several instances in chapter 6, um, uh, beginning in verse 1 and also appearing in verse 2 and 3, of the word LORD having all capital letters. Do you all see that? Maybe some of you have noticed this before in your Bibles. Does anybody know what it means when the word LORD has all capital letters? Yeah, Stephen, go ahead. You nailed it. Yes, this is, thank you, Stephen. And thanks for letting me pick on you for a second. Um, it takes a lot of courage to jump in in the middle of the sermons. Thank you. This is God's divine name, Yahweh. Whenever you see an all caps version of Lord, you can know that what's being used is God's special name. And in fact, um, if you are, are still looking at page 52 in verse 3, when we, we see, I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, you'll notice right at the end of that line, there's a little tiny italicized M in your Red Pew Bibles. That'll send you down to a footnote um, at the bottom of the page, and it says Hebrew, or H-E-B, Heb. Y-H-W-H. -H. That's how, in Hebrew how you write God's special name. It also directs you to look at verse uh, 15 of chapter 3. And if you want to learn more, you can turn there. That's the giving of the divine name. Um, but whenever you see the Lord in all caps in your Bibles, that's what's going on. This is God's special name revealed to Moses. Thank you for doing that little project with me. You can keep your Bibles out. You can put them away either way. Anytime you see that all caps word, this is God's identity, God's guarantee of God's promises. That's why more than anything else, God says to Moses, God says over and over to him, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Three times God says this. Because Moses needs to be reminded of the identity and nature of the God he serves. It's because of who God is that when all seems lost, we can trust in the promises of God. Now, this name Yahweh is not the way that God chose to be revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob needed to know God as El Shaddai or God Almighty. 
They didn't need to receive the promise of Yahweh, of I am, which is what Yahweh means. The promise of I will be your God. Yes, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did need to know that God was with them. But the promise of redemption contained in the name of God as revealed to Moses wasn't what they needed from God. And I wonder for you, how has God chosen to be revealed? What do you need to hear from our God? What's the encouragement that you need in this season of life? Maybe you need to know that God hears you when you groan for deliverance from a particular job or from a particular life situation or from your own brokenness. Maybe you need God to come to you as a friend, a parent, or loved one and remind you that all will be well, that all manner of things shall be well. Or maybe you're in a place where you need a God you can yell at. You need a God you can be frustrated with or even cuss out and know that that God will stay with you through it all and despite it all. Friends, this is how God chose to reveal to Moses. And this is how God self-reveals to us in the incarnation, in Jesus Christ. The promise of the covenant that's established with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is a key feature of Exodus. And it's fully realized in the person of Jesus. In Jesus, God hears the cries of the Hebrew people. In all, in, in, excuse me, not only the Hebrew people, excuse me, but also all of creation. God hears the groanings of all of us. In Jesus, God comes to the world reminding us that all shall be well. And in Jesus, God stayed in the world despite being yelled at, being falsely accused, being persecuted and ultimately condemned and executed. Just as God promises Moses that God will deliver him and the Hebrews out of Egypt, God has faithfully delivered all of us out of sin and death. Even through the death of God incarnate in Jesus Christ, when all hope seemed lost, the resurrection showed us that we can indeed trust in the promises of God. But returning back to Moses, despite all of this encouragement, the Hebrews didn't listen to Moses. I wonder if you caught why. Our text tells us that they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. The word that our translations render slavery can also mean service or indeed worship. This is going to be key for understanding what God is up to throughout all of Exodus. Who or what do we worship? Who or what do we serve? One way of answering that question, I think, is going to be by taking an inventory of how we spend our time throughout the week. One way of taking inventory of how we spend our time week to week, day to day, is by using a spiritual practice called the prayer of examine, which if you're interested in learning more about that on Wednesday at our Lenten worship service, Pastor Susan's going to walk us through what that looks like. Time is one of the most precious commodities that we've been given. And the more time we give to something or someone, the more we value it. 
We read in, in, in Psalm 1 that the righteous person meditates on God's law day and night. Now, this doesn't mean that the righteous person is always reading their Bible, is always actively in prayer or always going to church, but it does mean that the filter that we can apply to our time and energy is the filter of faith. When we constantly meditate on God's word, actively looking for ways to apply it to our lives, then we are worshiping and serving God. However, when we take an inventory of our time, this might not be what we find. The Hebrew people were cruelly enslaved by Pharaoh. They were serving Pharaoh. Some you may argue we're even worshiping Pharaoh because he was the chief authority to them. We can find ourselves cruelly enslaved by any number of counterfeit gods. Sometimes we primarily use our time to gain wealth or status. Some of us are enslaved to behaviors like alcohol or sex. And still others of us serve the counterfeit gods of career or family in ways that are unhealthy. And don't get me wrong, career and family are very, very good things. But when we put them as the chief end of our lives, then they become unhealthy and they can't take that burden. Whenever we find ourselves worshiping or serving one of these instead of the God of Scripture, we too experience the cruel slavery of idolatry. And like the Hebrews, we begin to suffer from a broken spirit. The literal translation of broken spirit is something like shortness of breath. Maybe you've experienced that because you, I don't know, you're not in my life situation, but sometimes I'll play a game with one of my kids where they will just jump on me. And when I'm lying down, I experience a shortness of breath. And there's a joyful shortness of breath, but then there's also the shortness of breath where you, you don't feel like you can get a full lungful of air. These idols, which demand our worship and service, grind us down, taking our hope, taking our peace, and even our God-given breath from us. If you're in a place where all hope seems lost, I'd invite you to take an inventory of your life. And ask whether what you worship restores your breath and spirit or leaves you struggling to breathe. I can't let one of my kids stand on my chest for long periods of time. I need to move them off. We need to have those boundaries. Know that when you have a broken spirit, when you have shortness of breath, when hope seems lost, you can trust in God's promises because God restores the brokenhearted. The yoke of Jesus Christ is easy and his burden is light. And wherever you may find yourself today, whether you've identified an idol in your life you need freedom from, or whether you feel despondent about what God has asked you to do, or maybe you just need to feel the loving arms of God surrounding you as you again walk down a path that you've been down several times before and feel like you should have mastered by now. Know that God is with you. Know that you can trust in the promises of the great I am. And as we do this, as we trust in the promises of God, we will experience both the freedom that comes from God and the new life promised in Jesus Christ. 
Church, may we live in to this freedom, believing that even when hope seems lost, we can trust in the promises of God. May it be so. Amen.